Welcome to An Actor Despairs. I'm your host, Ryan Perez. Ladies and gentlemen, it's been a long time. I hope everyone is doing okay out there during the strike. I'm thinking of you all. I have a special episode, but before digging in, I do want to say that this episode was recorded without any AMPTP participation or any PR connection. Ellen Rappaport, today's guest, is incredible. She's the showrunner and creator of Minx. It's one amazing show with Jake Johnson and Ophelia, who did the show last summer. Uh, Ellen and I connected far before the strike and talked about doing this, and it's so wonderful she came on to really illuminate what it's like to be a writer and a creator. And also in the middle of these streamers reallocating funds and writing off shows and to get lost in that and to find a new home. And I have so much gratitude to Ellen for creating such an amazing show. What she does with this show mix is incredible. And she's so honest about her journey from the very beginning of her life through her career. And I'm so grateful. I hope everyone is able to keep their heads up out there. It's really dark, and I hope this episode is able to provide some context and positivity, and I'm sending love to you all. Ellen, thank you so much. Here it is. Ellen Rappaport, welcome to An Actor Despairs. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. It's incredible, and the timing is almost divine because your show, season two, The Minx, is coming out today, and almost exactly a year ago, I got to speak to the number one on your call sheet and Ophelia and did an interview with her and she's so incredible in that show and that was an introduction to this show and I don't do I'm an actor but I do this podcast you know it it just kind of became a thing during COVID but occasionally you know opportunities present themselves and you know Ophelia seemed really cool and I really hadn't heard of the show to be honest and that was the first show in a long time that I just I just blew through and then I think I watched like half of it again It was incredible. And what you did with the show, mixing like messaging and and comedy and humor and something so real. It's just an amalgamation of so many different things. And I have such respect for, I mean, you're doing the thing that us actors can't do, which is create something out of nothing. And that's the reason we're in this strike right now is, you know, people aren't valuing that, which is unacceptable in my opinion. But the work you're doing is exceptional. And I'm so excited to get to talk to you. And I hope you know that you're just, you're really doing such amazing work. Thank you so much. And that's really kind of you. But I also would say that we'd be nothing without our actors. And, you know, I, I think that having them say the lines is not just, you know, people reciting things that I write, like they truly bring so much to themselves of themselves to these characters. And I feel like they give them soul in a way that like, I never could have imagined when writing them. But if it's okay with you, before we get to the work, let's start from the beginning. Where did you grow up? Um, I was born in Russia. I was a Russian immigrant. I lived there for four years and then my family moved out here. Um, and we were briefly in New Jersey. My parents were doctors, so they had to redo their medical training once they got here because I mean, it's kind of a good thing. You don't want like yeah, people who were European, <laughs> in, in, under in, communism. Yeah. Like, it's fine. Um, so they redid. They started in New Jersey, and then my dad got a cardiology fellowship that was 
um, in a, comp- a compressed period of time after that. So we moved to Minnesota. And then while we were in Minnesota, we, they were able, my mom's parents, my grandparents moved to Chicago where my grandfather, he was like, maybe, I don't know, in his 80s, got a job as a professor of mechanical engineering. Um, and so that was where he got the job from Russia. And so that's where we ended up. And so do you feel like that's kind of where your roots were most planted with Chicago? Um, yeah, I mean, it was the Chicago suburbs. Yeah, that's where... Which that's one? where Deerfield. Oh, my dad from Elgin. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's where, you know, I went to junior high and high school, some elementary school. So that does feel like home, although I don't really get back there that much. I understand. That's that's interesting. And then obviously moving around can be really intense. But then, you know, being an immigrant it was as well. Intense. Yeah. How how did you navigate that? You know, like, do you, do you remember it much or? I feel like I lied about it a lot because anytime I would start a new school, they were like, this is Ellen. She's from behind the iron curtain. And I'm like, this is not helpful. <laughs> so, and this is right out of the cold war, not to age you. I'm yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. no. It's like right after the cold war. I'm like, yeah. nobody wants to know this. Like it's not helpful to my popularity as a person. Um, and my social status in this school. So I really feel like I tried to downplay it. And um, I think like if I were a character, my I want <laughs> song would have been like, I just want to be normal. I want to be on the cheerleading squad. Like I don't want to have, you know, a half cousin at my school who has a full beard and mustache at age eight. Like, oh my god <laughs> i just want to be saw, cool yeah. and normal and then talk to me about the arts you know your, your your parents obviously had medical backgrounds when did you start getting interested into like film or tvs books literature you know all the above yeah i mean i was a huge reader i was kind of a nerd i read all the time nonstop things that were too old for me um Russian literature or? no okay. like Judy Bloom and like I had yeah I remember doing like a like a report on flowers in the attic nice <laughs> when I was like eight and you had to like go to the librarian oh no it wasn't flowers in the attic it was another one it was my sweet Audrina which was another VC Andrews book like I really liked salacious trash and I feel like I didn't even understand how traumatized I was about to make the librarian and I'm like okay So there's this girl and she keeps having flashbacks or, you know, like visions of um, another version of herself. And her name is Audrina and her family had like an older daughter named Audrina, her older sister who died. And she was like raped in the woods by boys. And it's like this really like Southern Gothic mystery. And then at the end, can I spoil my sweet Audrina? It's yeah, really of course. Old. Yeah. And then at the end, she finds out that she is Audrina. Wow. And she had electroshock therapy and her family has been lying to her. It's a really fucked up book. And I just remember the librarian was like, where did you get this? <laughs> <laughs> um, and by the way, I can't believe nobody's made that movie. Yeah, I know. Well, I mean, now we're going to have to option it. But um, now, now it's a free idea. 
But yeah, so I was always reading. I just never knew that that was like a job that you have. It was like a very squarely Midwestern existence. Um, So everyone was like a doctor or a lawyer or worked in business or, you know, it, it, it just never even occurred to me to do anything arts oriented, which is how I ended up in law school. Wow. Um, I know I'm a in lawyer. In Chicago or? At Harvard. Wow. Look at you. So you're very academic. I, you know what? It wasn't that hard. I don't know. It's not, it's not that hard of a place to graduate from. Once you're in, they're like, you're fine. Um, but it's, I, remember it, some, I think, sorry to interrupt. I apologize. But I think for most people listening and students around the world, you know, it's the idea of like, the middle school, high school preparation it takes just to get in is that is right. like the accomplishment in it of itself. For sure. Yeah. But I also feel like it was a lot easier back then. Maybe but no, it was, but it was you, hard. Your show's amazing. I never so. get in now. <laughs> I, 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 I would bet against that. But uh, with I never respect. ever would get into my college or my law school if I were applying now. It's a really different world and I think so competitive and These kids are so much smarter and so much accomplished than we were. Like, I didn't know anything. Um, But yeah, so I became a lawyer. And if you don't mind, I mean, I just to touch on it for a second. How was college for you? You know, I mean, what college was amazing. Yeah. Being away from your parents. Yeah. I went to Cornell. I didn't. Okay. Cornell for undergrad and then Harvard. Cornell for undergrad. It was great. It was really, really fun. I had a a group of friends. I loved being in a, in a, loved being able to choose my own classes. I loved the format of, you know, one test every two months, you know, it wasn't like this constant grind. I was never really great with that. I wasn't that academic, honestly. Um, Were the parents the ones that wanted the Ivy league laurels or it just worked out? No, I, I don't know. I feel like, I don't even know why I liked Cornell. I'm not even sure if I visited it. Yeah, Ithaca is such like, a weird, you know. Weird. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what I was thinking. I applied to a lot of schools, um, and it was the best one I got into. I don't know. It just seemed kind of pretty, and I was so suburban. I wasn't ready to live in a city or anything. Um, I just wanted, I guess it's like the same thing as wanting to be a cheerleader. I just like, I wanted the the college experience, the traditional yeah. college experience, like, you know, leafy paths and ivy brick wow and and were you still a voracious reader at this point i was i was always a voracious reader i'm still a voracious reader i just now i'm tired and i just fall asleep in the middle of books but um i've always read that's beautiful yeah and then then getting through law school, at what point then did, did the influences, whether conscious or subconsciously, start coming in from the art world that maybe start, you know, magnetically pulling you off onto a different path? Right. I mean, I just, first of all, I hated law school so much. I hated the format. I'm, I, I felt like I was motivated in a different way than the people Um, I just wasn't interested in the stuff we were talking about. Um, and I think the goal of the first year of law school is to teach you to think like a lawyer. They talked about that a lot. So it was like, it was rewiring your brain in a way that kind of gets rid of the emotion. Like emotion is just a tool used 
just a tool. Like you're not really like, it really teaches you to think logically. Clinically. I think clinically. Yeah. Like, and it also makes you really annoying. I feel like you're that person who's like, why don't you serve Diet Coke? Like, what is the policy? Oh, Karen. <laughs> so- <laughs> a Karen. Yeah. It turns you into like an, yeah. an intellectual Karen. Yeah. And I was like, I hate it here. And I told my parents, I was like, I should drop out. And they were paying for it. I'm like, I'm wasting your money. I should leave. And they're like, no, you should still stay. And like, figure out what you want to do while you're there. It's always good to have the degree, which feels crazy. But I was like, I guess I don't know what else I want to do. If you don't so know how I, far along was this, mo- this existential first year. Mo- first oh, year. it was first okay. year. I was okay. like, we yeah. can like cut our losses yeah. right now. So you knew pretty so, soon. Okay. I hated it so much. I hated it with a passion. Um, I hated it so much that I started writing a book proposal called don't go to law school. <laughs> It's amazing. <laughs> I just found it. It's so funny. Um, wow. Yeah. I was like, it's not like Allie McBeal at all. <laughs> it's not like LA Law. It's not like any show. So, I mean, that should tell you that's like where I got all my knowledge. <laughs> that's totally. like, you know, what I cared about. Um, so I just started trying to do other stuff to figure out what I could do that was like more fun and kind of I had other interests. I had an internship with some local news organization. I had to lie to them and say I was getting law school credit for it. Wow. Um, just I to get the exposure like, out. Because I was like, maybe yeah, I'm interested yeah. in journalism. I don't yeah. know. That's writing. It was always like dancing around writing. And then um, our third year, our last year of law school, we had a requirement to do a third year paper. Um, which is like a legal thesis about some topic. And I was like, I cannot tell you how profoundly I don't care. Like, I do not care about anything. And then my friend the year before had gotten permission to write a book with some sort of league, like, do you know who Mohsen Hamid is? I would be lying if I said I did, but I really, I He's really wish I could. He's very fancy. Yeah, He's like yeah. a fancy, I feel like if he hasn't won the Booker Prize by now. Like, okay. He will. Like, He's just like a very fancy literary writer and he got permission to write a book. And I was like, oh, so you can do something outside the box. And so I got permission to write a screenplay, which was a courtroom drama. It was awful. Um, But I was like, oh, this is great. This is fun. This is what I should be doing, except it should be funny and not take place in a courtroom. I was like, yeah, I, I don't even remember what it was about. So that's how I started writing. And this is before and Save the Cat. You just kind of taught yourself how to write. There are so many books. Okay, got it. I feel like I read Story. Okay. The McKee book. I took the class at at one point. He had, wow. like had an in person class. Um, I don't think anyone can teach you how to write anyway. I agree. Yeah, it's 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 I, a bit yeah. I think like you you just kind of have to feel it out. Um, I mean, people can make you better, but like. I don't, I've read a million books. There were so, there were so many books. Um, and I read a million screenplays. Like there were so many screenplays on the internet. Wow. I just kind of figured it out. Um, and where and did that catalyze you from there? Writing. I got an agent. agent. So you sold I, it on spec? I didn't, I didn't sell the first one. I sold the third one. I sold, I moved to New York. I started a job at a law firm. I was writing on the side. I got an agent at William Morris. Huge. And huge. 
And then I sold the third screenplay I wrote. This is such an annoying story. I feel like everyone's going to hate this. It's okay. My friend, who's still a great friend of mine, was married to somebody working at a studio. And she was like, can I read the screenplay? Like, she's from an old entertainment family. Her parents were producers. Um, Can I read it? And I was like, that would actually be really helpful. I'd love notes. Like, I didn't even know who to ask for notes. Um, And then she was reading it. And she was laughing in bed as she was reading it. And her husband was like, can I read it? She asked me, I'm like, yes, but like, he can't show it to anyone. It's not ready. And then like two days later, they were like, everyone in the office has read it. <laughs> like the coverage came back. Great. We want to buy it. And I was like, ah! like my, my head exploded. Wow. Mm-hmm. And, and, and did they? They bought it. They bought it. They flew me out to work with a director they attached. And then I ended up moving to LA. It never got made. I mean, it, it wasn't great. It had like a good voice. But it was um, obviously amazing enough to get you out of that job. I mean, that must have been, how did, how did you feel at that time? I was very excited, but I was very nervous about leaving the job. So I tried to get them to give me a sabbatical. Got it. So you could protect yourself. Um, and then they, they like waited to, like, I don't know. It was like a 600-person law firm. So I feel like they're like the biannual meeting. So you went all you in know? on Ellen, so if you will. I, ha- I was yeah. forced to because yeah. like they just wouldn't give me an answer. They're probably still like debating it. Yeah. Wow. Um, it was just like a big place. They just weren't set up for Kudos like, I'm going to have a sabbatical. Also, it was just like weirder than for people to be writing screenplays on the side. I don't think people were doing that as much. Now I feel like everyone has some side hustle. That's true. They were mean. Like, they weren't nice about it. I remember in my interview, I told, so dumb. In my interview, they're like, what are your hobbies? And I told the guy that I was working on a screenplay. And he was like, do you really think it's that easy to write something? My wife is a playwright. And I was like, had like fantasies of like going in there and being like, actually, guess what? It was that easy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Fantasy aggression is my favorite. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it was so yeah. mean. Yeah. Um, and then by the time I sold it, I was like, well, I don't care. <laughs> like, I don't care what he thinks anymore. So that's kind of like the problem with having a nemesis yeah. is that by the time you vanquish your nemesis, your imaginary nemesis, of course, because like, no, <laughs> like, he had no idea that he had offended me or didn't care. But it's te- like, it, life is kind of like its own reward, I guess. You know what I mean? Like you just... By the time you're there, you don't care anymore. Yeah. And at so that frustrating. Point, I can only imagine. And <laughs> at, that, at that point, you move to LA and is it, you're, you're developing it and does it get made? It doesn't get made. There's a shakeup at the studio. My friend leaves. We don't like the new person. There's a new producer on it. It's just like the story you've heard a million years. Very fitting for the times. Kicked kicked around, put in development. I started working on other stuff. And, you know, a lot of, like, screenplays, a lot of, like, paid rewrites, just a lot of stuff, not a ton getting made. Any writer's Um, room jumps or... A little, a few writer's room stuff, but just like, I loved being in a room. I just didn't really like the content of what I was doing, which is like, I think common for a young writer. Um, And it just like, wasn't 
quite sure what to do. And it felt in a way it was easier to sell stuff than to get staffed. Um, I just, I don't know that I ever like presented well in, in, in like, uh, I don't know. I feel like the, the right person on staff is like, I really want to help you execute your vision. And I was so dumb. I'd be like, these are the things that are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. I, I wouldn't have hired, I would never hire, I would never hire me in a million years. Yeah. Um, so I don't know, just kind of, kind of felt my husband was, had to switch from features to TV. And I was like, Oh, it's so interesting. Like people tell you what's happening in the project and like, ask your opinion. And, um, Is then you get to be in charge TV of something. Then it was, it was actually pre peak T. I mean, okay. I think it was like pre peak TV, but like just the difference in how people were treated and, writers and television versus movies um, was jarring. And I just felt like I just always had more luck with selling TV stuff. I, you know, must've sold like 15 pilots. Wow. So you were conceptualizing things left and right. Yeah. right? That's amazing. Yeah. And then this one went, so and, here and we are. Can we talk about, so the origins for this, you know, it, it takes place in the seventies and yes. it's, uh, I, I, I don't, I don't want to give away the log line. You, how would you describe for those who haven't yet watched season one, which is available now on stars? Yeah. I mean, I feel like if you haven't watched season one, why are you even listening to this podcast? <laughs> You'd like, be surprised. <laughs> like, watch the show. It's yeah. been over a year. Yeah. Watch the show. Um, yeah. Get a subscription. Uh, it's basically about this woman, Joyce Prigger, who is um, this feminist in 1972 Los Angeles. And she is a very passionate, hardworking, earnest academic person with a lot of personal foibles. Um, she's trying to sell a magazine um, that's, let's say, a version of Ms. Magazine, yeah. you know, geared toward women, geared to explaining feminism. Um, and the only person who wants to publish it is, um, a man named Doug Renetti, who is a softcore smut pornographer, um, and who sees the, the value in monetizing the women's movement and doing a magazine for women. It's just the, the catch is that he thinks that part of selling a feminist magazine to women involves putting in naked men and, um, you know, m meeting women, uh, not just in terms of like academically, but also sexually and, you know, advocating for sexual equality as well. That's why I had you do that. That was so beautiful and so eloquent. <laughs> thank you. I'm so sorry I made you do that, but thank you for your service on that. And it's incredible, guys. It's, it's, it's riveting. It's funny and it's deep and it's intellectual and it speaks more, I think, directly to issues that are going on than shows that are not comedic. And that's what I find so brilliant about your mm -hmm. writing. And I guess, you know, for me, a question for you is like, you know, intentionality when, when you created this, did you see it as a, a you know, a, I don't want to say it's, it's not really a tragedy, but there's, you know, serious moments, but a, mm -hmm. a comedy, so to speak, or was it, did it take? I mean, I saw it as exactly what it became. That was always wow. the tone in my head. I always, I pitched out that scene where Joyce and Doug first meet that was in all the pitches we weren't sure if it would be an hour or a half hour, but like, even if it were to be an hour, it would have that kind of, the tone was always the tone. Um, which I think is like, 
actually like kind of chaotic if you think about it like it really does have like a lot of lighthearted comedy mixed with drama but i feel like it works yeah it absolutely i mean it works for me and i can only please myself and no and you've pleased so many people and and so many people listened to the ophelia interview and loved it and loved your work and and it's such an incredible show. And, you know, I hate to bring up the the, the, the elephant in the room, but you guys were in the middle of or, or, or towards the end. Right. And like the third part of production when you found we, out. We were on the tech. I was on the tech scout for um, the last episode, which I was also directing. Wow. <laughs> it was really crazy timing. Um, so it was me and like, 40 electricians in a really big parking lot when they called me. And it was, it, they did call you. It wasn't through the press. No, Lionsgate. Call, yeah, yeah, yeah. Lionsgate called me. HBO Max didn't call me until days later. Wow. The audacity. No, no. It's LA. Nobody yeah. remembers the bad news themselves if they don't have to. Yeah, I guess that's true. God. That's so I awful. delivered the bad news personally to all the actors. And you had faith in 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 Lionsgate and um, in the show enough to not despair, pun intended. Title of the show. Well, I, I I was not. It was it was a trip. Like it was really. It had this was never something that we had talked about. I just like didn't even consider this as the realm of in the realm of possibility. Yeah. So it was like as if somebody was like an alien attack is coming. Like I had spent about as much time considering an alien attack as I had the idea that we would be written down. Like it wasn't, we were like one of the first. It didn't exist. We were also, it didn't really exist. It existed for stuff that was completed. We were like in production. They hadn't even seen it. They'd seen like two episodes and liked them, you know? Um, So it felt really bonkers. And I guess they had a December 15th deadline to do it, which is why it happened when it happened. Um, so the news was delivered to me um, in a good news, bad news sandwich of like, love what you're doing. We're being written down. We already have some interest. So they had waited to tell me until they thought the story was close to leaking, which I completely appreciated. I did not yeah. want that information. Um, then, you know, then I wasn't allowed to tell anyone. It was just the only people that knew were me, Paul Feig, who's our non-writing EP, and Dan Mignante, who's also a non-writing EP and was on set with me every day. And so we would just be looking at each other like, this is fucking wow. <laughs> But like, we yeah. couldn't, you know, first of all, like, I just didn't want to, I wanted to give a good news, bad news sandwich. Yeah. You know, I didn't, I mean, I just like, can't even imagine how much that would fuck with your performance. Um, but yeah, at a certain point they were like, the story is going to leak. You should tell the actors of the weekend. Um, so I had to call everyone individually and deliver that bad news. And then it was like, I really was hoping the story wouldn't come out until we, um, were wrapped because we only had five days left and it came out like I had like a half hour notice. So we were shooting the story came out. And I had to like tell the crew, you know, I mean, I just, it was, it was a weird day. Yeah. What, you know, it's that, that saying comedy is the overwhelming presence of tragedy, but you, you, you piled through and you finished. And I mean, how did that feel to then you, you said you had two episodes left? No, we had my episode that I was directing okay. and then we had reshoots. 
And yeah. mercifully, my friend Sherry Appleby was directing the reshoots on the day that the story broke. So I was like, at least I'm not directing today because I think that would have been hard. I mean, my phone blew up, you know, it was like everyone I'd ever known was contacting me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we had five days left to get through. Um, it was okay because the truth is at that point, I knew that they couldn't hold us hostage. They had to give us back to Lionsgate. So I knew somebody would take the show. It was just a question of who, and I knew that people were interested. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, I tried to explain to the crew, like HBO Max only distributed us in North America and Latin America. Everything else was controlled by Lionsgate. Like internationally, like in the UK where Ophelia is right now, like it's on Paramount Plus. It'll remain on Paramount Plus. Wow. Um, so... I think everyone got it and I did promise that their work would be seen. And so I think that was helpful. And I mean, I guess I didn't know that with a hundred percent certainty, but I was like 99% sure. So I felt like that was, that was okay to say. Um, And then it just became, it was a great week. (laughs) It actually became a great week. Yeah, I was going to say, were you able to enjoy your episode? You know, I loved it. I had the best time. It was full, like the inmates are running the asylum. And what was nice is that I was able to use the reshoot week. Let's let's take that back because I I don't I don't want to. Is that a spoiler? The inmates are running the asylum. I didn't know if that was an episode. No, 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 no. no, no. Got it. I was like, wait, wait. it's an expression. Yeah, yeah, got it. It it was like we had no oversight (laughs) anymore. Got it. It was like I had three, two reshoot, two or three. I can't remember. Two or three reshoot days planned with like money and a crew, and I was like, I guess we're reshooting what I want to reshoot now because like we were reshooting things for HBO Max, and then I'm like. Or like, I'm not, you know, there, there's no reason to do that anymore. I was like, I have, I have things I'd like to reshoot. So like that scene, uh, that last scene in the first episode when they're all in the tiki bar. Yeah. I feel like I had them build like a tiki bar. Like they didn't want to do that scene. There were, I mean, they, I, <laughs> we had that a version of that scene that was shot in the layout room. Got it. Where they were just like celebrating together and like they were the only lit up room in the office and it was beautiful. It was beautifully shot. Our director, Max Winkler, made it look incredible. It looked like a painting. The vibe for them felt too uh, plain, sad, wistful to the network. They felt like it was almost like it was like a hopper painting. God. Like it had a, a sadness to it. And I was like, okay, I'll reshoot the scene and then I'll build the tiki bar from the first episode from the pilot. I'll build a version of the tiki bar. We'll do the same scene there. We don't need to change anything. It'll be great. It'll be fun. You'll be shouting over the music. And they were like, well, why don't we just end at the dog show? And I'm like, I think that you want to see everyone together. Yeah. I think you, I had a cut where you end at the dog show. It totally works. Yeah. Like, it would have been fine. You know what I mean? I got why they wanted to do it. It was clean. It was dug in choice. Walking out, you got it. And I was like, I still want to see if this scene works. Yeah. And now, like, no one is stopping me. So yeah. I guess I can just do it. So I was like, I had a, you know, I was like, do we, can we build a tea bar in like four days? And they're like, yep. We had an amazing production designer who could do anything. Wow. Um, and the script was basically the same. And so, you know, it was, it was like that. Like I described it to somebody is it's like when you 
I imagine. It's like when you get divorced, but you still have access to the credit cards. <laughs> so uh, I had so, I ordered so much equipment. Good. I was like, should. we had like a 62 foot crane going over the Pacific ocean. And I'm yeah. like, I think I need this. Yeah. Thank you. Thank Rightfully you, David so. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, yeah. I mean, the whole thing is miraculous. Cause like the truth is they could have just shut us down and been like, you know, your new, your new daddy can uh, pay for you to finish. And they were like, as cool as you can be about it <laughs> Yeah. without, you know, like, I, I, I mean, like all of this aside, like I really like our HBO max executives, you know, like they took a chance on the show. Like this is kind of above their heads. Right. Yeah. So are. totally. So I think like they fought for this to be handled. Like they saw how bad it was when something got backgirled when Batgirl got backgirled and like how the community reaction was just so terrible and they really didn't have to do this, but you know, they were like, they let us keep shooting and they paid for us to finish post, which Thank is a lot of money. Yeah. So, yeah. So like, you know, it is possible that stars would have come in and just done that, but like, you don't want to shut down when you have five days yeah. left Especially while um, there was still COVID protocols. I mean, who knows? Oh, yeah. my God. Yeah. And, like, you know, there's seen there, and, like, the locations are so crazy and yeah. so much money and people disappear. And then, like, I'm sure Jake wanted to cut his hair. Yeah. You know? That's true. Wow. <laughs> we had a reshoot in that first season. And I was like, I, I know we're going to have a reshoot after Christmas. I'm like, if you have to cut it, I understand. It's like, I get it. It's so itchy, but like, you're going to be in a wig and it's not going to look right, but like, I get it. And so poor Jake, like, you know, all he wanted was to like shave that 70s hair <laughs> off of him. Like he was so desperate um, and he just kept it. Well, thank you, Jake, for your service. It's amazing. I know. It really yeah. was. Yeah. Well, and, and, and now it's out and, and you put, you've pulled off like 17 coups by doing this. You know, I mean, you, you you not only got a show made, you, you you had one show at a network and then went through this thing and you still managed to carry the torch through the end, find another home with, you know, your, your partner. And now you got the new season out and I hope you're proud of it because the world is collapsing and we need shows like this. This is what we need right now. You know, there's so much I mean, yeah. cannon fodder I, out there that I, I I won't I won't belittle anyone, you know, because I know people don't always get to choose the work that they do. And but the work that you're doing is beautiful and it means so much to me because shows are like this are, are what I, I want and these are deep yeah. and they have such value. So thank you for your service. Thank you. That's really kind. And you know, I have to say like I feel so lucky that all these terrible showrunner abuses and mini rooms haven't happened on this show. Like we had a full room, both seasons, everyone got a script, you know, my assistant from season one was our staff writer in season two. Like it just worked the way that it was supposed to work. And we had, everyone was able to come to set for their episode. Everyone was able to come for their mix. Like we paid two writers to be on set for, you know, five or six weeks. And it was incredibly helpful. Um, and Bringing I think the next generation. Crazy. Thank you. I mean, as it's supposed to be done. I mean, it's crazy to me that people are getting to co-EP level without ever getting to produce anything. Um, and it is one of those things that you could just kind of figure out by doing. Yeah. Um, 
So, you know, I think, yeah, it all kind of feels miraculous, especially when I hear the stories of my contemporaries and how these crazy stories about these streamers and what they've done. We've both I listened mean, to, to those out there looking for more information about Strike Talk. The podcast does a good job of summarizing a writer's perspective of this all. And uh, I'm just giving context for those listening. Yeah, no, yeah. there's just there, there's a lot of abuses. And I just don't think that it's the way that these companies are being run are a good way to to foster creativity, you know, like we're not making peanut butter and putting it in jars. Like you have to have, you, you know, you do have to create an atmosphere where people will do their best work. I mean, I guess that's in any company, but especially when you're asking people to be creative and to go into an office and be like, this terrible thing happened to me and my mom. And now I'm going to put it on TV, Yeah, (laughs) you know, and like, I'm going to excavate all my past trauma. Like, (sighs) You don't want to feel like the person is also like, if you spend more than $9 on lunch, we're going to find you. <laughs> oh God. I, I knew exactly what you're talking about too. And I had friends there and it needs to end. And, and I hope this strike, you know, as tough as it is for, for members of the WGA and, and now SAG members, you know, I, it has to lead to people, these 10 type of individuals that have this abusive power and unprecedented salaries and wealth to, to destroy art because it's yeah. not, it's not, it's not, a, it's not going to create anything that humans are going to want to watch. And you have. Yeah. And no, I, thank you. I, nice. I always try to kind of end on a note where giving it back to, to the next generation or, you know, the younger you, you know, and I know this is a really tough question, especially given the times, but any words of wisdom you might have to the, to the writers out there, to the people that are just so maybe not, not, especially not in the union yet and, and just have this dream, but are just feeling so broken by, by the reality of late stage capitalism. I don't know. I don't <laughs> Sorry, know I'm so do. intense. I know. I mean, that's yeah. the thing. I'm like, yeah. I wish I could be encouraging. Yeah. I honestly don't have any advice. I'm like, I'm like them. I'm like watching this industry implode. And I hope that we're able to fix it. And I really have a lot of respect for these young writers who are standing up against abuses that older people let go unchecked for so long. So I guess it would be to keep doing that. But like in terms of anyone's job security, like I'm not, I'm not optimistic, including my own, all of ours. Yeah. At the moment. But I'm really just like in awe that they're able to do what everyone else couldn't, which is just to be like, this is not acceptable. This is enough. I know you may not have control over this, but if 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 all, you know, contracts are signed season three, would you do it? I'd love to. Yeah, I would love that. Absolutely. Yeah. And it means so much you coming on and giving back and sharing your story. And it's so inspiring to know going from this Ivy league and, 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 and staying strong amongst all this, you know, intense, intense, just darkness and to create a bright show for us during it. So thank you for your service. Thank you. And thank you for having me on. (laughs) 
If you like the show, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening.